entrepreneur by the name of Alan Rolski made himself a little bit of a small fortune by, and this is really sinister, he made himself a small fortune by collecting people's information online, our social security numbers, email addresses, all of that stuff, and then he would sell that information to other businesses who would then send out spam email and send you stuff in your mailbox. And you're like, that's the worst kind of person, you know? And the Detroit News did a sort of undercover expose on Alan Rosky, and they ran a story on him, and they, they mentioned that he had an 8,000-square-foot home that he was living in, this lavish lifestyle, all from stealing people's information and giving it out to corporations so they could send a spam email. And so people became angry about this. They sought revenge. They were like, we're going to get back at this guy. And someone found his home address, and they published it online. And, and they encouraged every. I think it was on like Reddit or something, you know, and they encouraged everybody to sign him up for as much junk mail and credit cards that they could. And so this guy, credit cards, catalogs, advertising, campaign materials, everything. And the result is that this guy, Alan Rosky, who had made a fortune over selling people's information, Everyone signed him up for all this junk mail, and he started receiving 200 pounds per day of mail. So, (laughs) revenge can be so sweet sometimes, can't it? But sometimes revenge isn't so funny. Uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, the best book I've never read, but I've pretended to read to make people think I'm smart. written by Alexander Dumas, there's this character in there named Edmond Dante. And he spe- he's spending, the story opens up and he's spending, the movie is by, great, the movie by the way is great, Luis Guzman is hilarious. And, uh, but Edmond Dante, or Jim Caviezel, if you're thinking the movie, he's spending his life in prison after being falsely accused of treason by his friends. And so he's wrongly accused, he's in prison, and he begins to grow very, very angry at the people who put him there by lying about him. And he becomes consumed with this idea of enacting revenge. And so he thinks about. And while he's in prison, he becomes friends with an old disgraced priest. They call him the mad priest. And the priest educates him in culture and language and arts and sciences and math and literature and everything. And so Dante becomes very, very cultured and very, very smart and educated while he's in prison. But The priest also gives him the coordinates to a secret treasure that's buried on an island off in the ocean somewhere. And then there's this moment where Dante actually has been digging this uh, tunnel and he escapes prison. He goes out, he gets a ship and he goes out and finds the treasure. And so now here he is. He's a free man. He's highly educated now. And now he's got unlimited money and unlimited resources. And he sets himself up as the Count of Monte Cristo. So he's this high-powered, 
influential person now. And he begins, um, he escapes prison and reestablishes himself as this wealthy and powerful person. And he uses this new identity and these new resources to seek vengeance. And this power to then find ways to manipulate the people around him to enact vengeance on the people who put him in prison. And it overtakes him. He becomes obsessed with enacting revenge and it actually blackens his heart to the point that he loses himself in the process. He's no longer the innocent Dante that went to prison, but now he's some kind of monster where all he thinks about is overtaking his enemies. And the priest says at one point, when he sees this transformation happening, the priest tells Dante, he says, I regret now that I ever helped you in your late inquiries and that I gave you all the information that I did. And Dante says, well, why is that? And the priest says, because it has instilled a new passion in your heart, that of vengeance. And later in the story, as Dante's revenge tour is taking shape and is on the move and he's undoing the lives of all these people in his path, Alexander Dumas, the author of the book, writes about his character. He says that Dante felt that he had passed beyond the bounds of vengeance and now he could no longer say God is for me and God is with me. He became consumed with unforgiveness, bitterness, revenge. And that is such a dangerous thing. Because when we become consumed with bitterness and revenge and anger, it consumes us and it poisons our hearts. Winston Churchill said that nothing in this world is more costly than vengeance. Nothing is more costly than vengeance. And we're studying the life of David here in our church. And young David was a victim of incredible injustice. King Saul was the king at the time and violated David's human rights, what we would call them today. See, David had been a good servant to Saul. He had played the harp in his palace. He was one of Saul's musicians. He had fought battles on the battlefield. I mean, Saul looked good because David was a good warrior. But David started becoming very popular and people began to say David should be king. People started wanting David to be king more than Saul. And he became more popular than Saul. And and Saul's heart began to grow dark toward David. And he became murderously jealous and angry and attempted to kill David multiple times through spears and these plots, these suicide missions that he would send him on. And eventually he chases David out into the wilderness and forces David to be separated from his family and separated from civilization. And essentially, where we ended last week is David is in the wilderness hiding out in caves. Like he's in the middle of nowhere hiding out in caves for his life. And he does this for a decade. And I'm sure that while David is on the run, hiding out in rock caves, he's probably daydreaming about revenge on Saul, wouldn't you? You'd be thinking, I would love to just... You'd daydream about the moment where you could get back at him for all the the hell that he's put you through. And he he would have thought about this all the time, not just because he wanted to seek revenge, but by Saul dying, it would have meant that David would become king. He was next in line. And so he's thinking, if, if I could just have a chance to kill Saul like he's trying to kill me, he, I would no longer have somebody chasing me, and I would be the king. That would be the best thing that could happen to me. And in 1 Samuel 24, we, find us, we see David in a moment where he has the chance to enact revenge. He's in a situation where revenge is possible. And the story picks up when King Saul has heard about David, <coughs> excuse me, hiding out in the caves of a place called En Gedi. And so Saul says, okay, David's hiding out in the caves. And so Saul grabs an army of 3,000 men and he goes out on the hunt looking for David and says, I'm going to kill David and it's going to be over with. 
And it picks up in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 24. It says, And Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yep, that means exactly what you think it means. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So here's the scene. David is in a cave hiding out. Saul doesn't know he's in that cave. Saul walks in there because he's got to go to the bathroom. Saul walks in, thinks this is a good private place where I can go relieve myself. He puts his sword down. He pulls up his robe and he squats down and starts going to the bathroom. That's not me being crass. That's the Bible, okay? And so the scene is Saul's back is turned to David. Saul doesn't know David is in the cave. And Saul's not in a position to attack. I mean, he's not like in like he's not ready to go. He's not he's not in a warrior position. He's probably like reading a newspaper or scrolling through his phone like he's on Twitter checking scores or whatever. And David's men, they're seeing this and they're like, David, do you see what's in front of you? That is that's King Saul. This is your chance. And David, in a moment, he stands up and his men say to him, they say, here is the day, this is verse 4, which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And they tell David, they say that God has orchestrated this moment for you. God has orchestrated this moment for you to kill Saul. And it says David arises and he stealthily cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. It says, and afterward, though, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. See, David caught up in the moment. His friends are saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. This is your chance. And David stands up and he takes a swing at Saul and he cuts off his robe. He doesn't lay the blow. And he just gets a piece of Saul's robe. And his heart reminds him when he does that that something's not right. And he goes, you know what? This is not a moment that God gave me because God would never be pleased with murder. Not in any situation. So David's men were wrong. This isn't a moment that God gave them. But rather this was just a coincidence. And David said, you know what? God would never want me to murder. So I've done something wrong. And he turns to his men in verse 6. And says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my king. The Lord, my Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him. Seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words. And he said, do not attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And so this story is a moment where David has a chance for revenge, but he doesn't take it. He forgives Saul. He lets Saul go, and he trusts God to right his wrongs rather than seek revenge. And this is what we see in David. But you also see this other story of Saul. Why is he hunting David down? Because of something called toxic anger. (laughs) Sinful anger. And Saul succumbs to it. While David doesn't succumb to sinful anger, Saul does. And that's why he's hunting David down. He's angry with David. But he has no reason to be angry with David. There's no reason for him to be so upset with David. He has every reason to be good to David. David has been a good warrior for him. David has never threatened him. David has been good to him. But rather than return the favor and be kind to David, Saul wants David dead. Now why would this be? Because of sinful, toxic anger. Because David was a threat to the thing that Saul loved the most. Himself. His reputation. His power. And he knew that David was more popular than him. More popular with people than he was. And David's rise to power actually brings out the worst in King Saul. And this is how anger always is. 
We get angry when the thing that we love the most is threatened. See, why is it that we can read the headlines in the morning and read about things like homelessness, genocide, racism, poverty, corporate theft, whatever. We read those things and we might get mildly angry, but then we pour a bowl of cereal and go on with our day. But if we get on the train and somebody steals our seat, or if somebody cuts us off in traffic, God help us, we become furious. Why is it that we become so much more infuriated, infuriating over little tiny things than we do about the biggest injustices in the world today? Because we don't really care about other people nearly as much as we care about ourselves. We don't care about the injustices of the world near as much as we care about getting to work on time so that we can look good for our boss. See, we, when we become angry when the thing we love the most is threatened. That's why we get upset when somebody cuts us off in traffic. We love ourselves the most when somebody cuts us off. We take it as a sin against us. This person is out to get us, you know. And see, Saul loved himself more than anything. He loved his power. He loved his status. And he was threatened by David. And that's why he became angry and sought to kill him. And the point is this. Scott Sauls, who is a pastor, used to be a pastor here in New York City and now in Nashville, He says that toxic anger happens when ultimate things mean too little to us and penultimate things, meaning secondary things, mean too much to us. And if you look closely in your own life at your anger, you will discover what it is or who it is that that you truly worship in your life. You will discover the thing that you love the most. When your money is threatened, if you get angry, you love money more than anything. If your pride is threatened because someone does better than you, it's you that you worship. That's the toxic kind of anger. But there's also a good kind of anger. It's called righteous anger. And David demonstrated this anger in his life. He was angry with Goliath when Goliath defied his God. And so he put him to death. Jesus experienced anger. Jesus rolled up into the temple one time and started raging, flipping tables on people who were selling and gambling and doing all this sort of stuff in the temple that was supposed to be meant for prayer. And David's flipping over tables because people are profiting off of the poor and the oppressed rather than serving the poor and the oppressed. They had made a mockery of God's house. And so God and Jesus comes in and he just goes on a rampage. That's righteous anger. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day a brood of vipers for preaching but not practicing his word and for not paying attention to those on the margins and actually oppressing those on the margins. Jesus got angry with the religious leaders who said one thing with their mouths but did another thing with their lives. That's righteous anger. And David says in verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you, meaning me and Saul, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So David had a righteous anger. Somebody was going after his life. He had a right to be angry about that, but he did not allow his anger to lead him into sin. David says in Psalm chapter 4, he says, Be angry, but do not sin. And even though he was angry with Saul, he would not allow his anger to lead him to break one of God's commandments to not murder. David was angry, but he did not sin. He did not seek revenge, but rather he forgave. And so the question for us today is where did he find the strength to forgive? Or where does forgiveness come from? How did David forgive and how do we forgive? Because forgiveness is central to the Christian life. Yet so many of us, many of you in this room, may be harboring unforgiveness towards someone. 
And so how do you today find the strength to forgive like David? The first thing is that you must understand the cost of unforgiveness. You need to understand what it would cost you to hold on to that bitterness. See, forgiving Saul was actually very costly for David. But David knew that revenge would actually cost him much more. See, David displays this remarkable trust in God's sovereignty and allows Saul to go free. He doesn't seek revenge, but he forgives. And you know, his men are probably thinking like, David, what are you doing? Why would you do that? This was your chance. But David says, you know, I trust that the Lord will keep me safe and secure and that the Lord will give me my throne when and only when God chooses to place me there. And this decision not to kill Saul came at a great price to David. It meant that he had to wait even longer to be king. And it meant that he had to continue running for his life for several more years. See, forgiveness is costly. So imagine, I know cars are a luxury in this city, but imagine you own a car. And it's parked on the street. It's parked on your block. And somebody comes in and you go to your car one day and you see that they've tried to squeeze into a space that they probably shouldn't have squeezed into. And they've rammed your car and they've knocked off your bumper. And you know who it is. You saw it happen. If you choose to forgive that person, that means that that, the cost of your bumper is on you. It might be $1,000. It might cost you $1,000 to forgive that person. If you, if you made that person pay for it, it would cost them. But if you forgive them, then you're essentially saying, don't worry about it, I got this. And to forgive them actually costs you a bumper, $1,000, $600, whatever. Likewise, when it, more personally, when you forgive someone who has caused you pain in your life, that can actually be a painful thing for you because you are absorbing the damages without retaliating. You're not dishing back to them what they dish to you. And that's hard and that's painful. And, you may, and, and by forgiving someone, you might actually put yourself in a position to be taken advantage of and be sinned against again. See, Saul continued to hunt David after this event because there's a cost to forgiveness. David forgave Saul, but it cost him something. So when we forgive others, yes, it, it costs us something. But there is also a much more expensive cost to holding a grudge and holding on to bitterness and holding on to anger. And seeking vengeance. That will cost you so much more than if you just forgave. Corey Ten Boom, who is a Holocaust survivor, writes about forgiving those who tormented her and her family. She says to forgive, she held on to this bitterness. But she realized that by letting go of the bitterness, she actually became free. She said to forgive is to set a prisoner free. And that prisoner is actually you. Nelson Mandela says that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that it will kill your enemies. And Bono, who has not experienced nearly as much injustice as either of those two people, but nevertheless has some wise words. He says, forgiveness is to refuse to subdue a monster by becoming one yourself. See, David refuses to take vengeance and he allows Saul's death to mark his conscience. He trusts, he he refuses to allow Saul's death to be something he has to live with. So he trusts in the Lord to enact justice in his life. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is trusting that God will bring justice to all the the wrongs and all the evil in this world. So that you don't have to be the one who's like the vigilante going around and making sure everybody pays for everything they do. Second thing we need to do if we want to understand how to forgive is we need to understand the nature of our own sin. See, one of the most convicting things about 
The example of David in this narrative is the way in which he's dialed in to his own sin. He understands who he is. David sees himself in this story first and foremost as a sinner. Even though it would be easy for him to see himself as a victim. I deserve vengeance. I deserve this. So David, when his men start goading him, he stands up, he grabs his knife, and he takes a swing, and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and it hits him in that moment. This isn't what I want to do. And the fact that he cut off Saul's robe, that's not an insignificant detail. See, Jewish people in this time, they were commanded to have tassels on the corners of their robes. And those tassels were a reminder to keep the law of God, to keep the Ten Commandments. And so David, when David takes a swing at Saul and he cuts off the corner of his robe and he picks it up and there's a tassel hanging from his hand, David would look at that and would immediately think of the commandment, do not murder. And David's holding this and he's going, what have I done? What am I doing? Am I really going to commit murder? And in that moment, David was forced to come face to face with his own murderous heart. Yes, Saul was trying to get him, but he saw in that moment that he was perfectly capable of the same thing that Saul was doing. He was perfectly capable of murder himself. And David saw himself in that moment, not as somebody who needed to seek revenge, but rather he saw saw himself as someone who also needed forgiveness. Because he realized that he had sinned against God in that moment. And unfortunately, we fail to recognize our own sins sometimes. Because it's so easy, and you guys know this is true, it's so easy for us to look at the sins of other people, but fail to see our own. Somebody said one time, they, I can't remember who it was, but they asked somebody, they said, you know, Christians like to say love the sin or hate the sin, but how is that lived out in practice? And somebody said, easy, we do it to ourselves all the time. <laughs> See, it's easy for us to look at other people's sins but not see our own. When other people lie, cheat, and steal, what are they? Liars, thieves, and cheaters, right? But when we lie and steal and cheat, what are we? Oh, I missed some numbers. (laughs) Maybe I misrepresented myself on a resume. It's complicated, or that's just a white lie. I left out some details. See, other people are liars. We're just, eh, we fudge the truth a little bit. See, our default mode is hypocrisy. Every one of us. And hypocrites are unable to forgive others. It's like a little kid. By by holding on to sin yourself but not forgiving other people, it's like a little kid. You know when you're praying at dinner or whatever and one kid says, when the prayer's over, they go, his eyes were open. Mom, his eyes were open. And you're like, how did you know that? Because your eyes were open, you hypocrite. And when we refuse to forgive other people, that's exactly what we're doing. We're pointing out what they've done wrong without looking into our own selves and seeing that we're just as guilty as they are. Jesus himself said, don't talk about the speck in somebody's eye when you've got a two by four sticking out of yours. Miroslav Volf, he's a professor at Yale University. He's a Christian. He says, unforgiveness is prevalent because we exclude our enemies from the community of humans while we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We look at other people. They're not human. They're wrong. They're animals. But then we go, we're not that bad. Unforgiveness happens when we exclude our enemies from the community of humans and while we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And with Saul's tassel in his hand, David's heart struck him. And he says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing. David saw in that moment his own sin, and he saw that he was a hypocrite. 
And he saw himself as a sinner in need of forgiveness. He was just as jealous and just as insecure and just as self-serving as Saul was. He just hadn't had the same circumstances in his life to expose it until this moment. And he said, you know what? I'm just as guilty as Saul. And that empowered him to forgive Saul as well. See, we need to understand the nature of our own sin before we can forgive others. And finally, we need to understand the grace of God. David says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. See, David is angry, but he trusts God in this moment that God will avenge Saul's evil. And that's why he says, I can trust God. Saul's gonna, God's going to take care of Saul. I don't have to worry about him. And some people don't like this. They don't like, people say this, they say, I don't like the God of the Bible avenging people. My God doesn't avenge, people say. And I would just say, yeah, you're a Western Christian. Probably white, if you would say that. Because <laughs> you've never experienced what it's like to be sinned against. Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian, who I quoted a moment ago. He lived through an unbelievably horrible chapter of ethnic cleansing in his nation. And he says, and he's a scholar now, and he says, people say that if you believe in a God of judgment, that that will lead you to show judgment to others. If you believe someone's actions are evil and are under the judgment of God, that will make you hate them and be violent toward them. But he said, this is actually the opposite. He said, when you don't believe in a God at all is when you become violent and judgmental. Because if, if you don't believe in a God and somebody wrongs you, Who's there to take up your cause? Only you. But Volf said that while he was a young adult and he was wrestled with hating people for the hell that they put him and his family through, he said, but when I came to know Christ and when I came to be a believer in God, he says, as a believer in God, I realized that the people who did these horrible things would have to answer to God. And so I did not have to make them answer to me. And that gave me the resources not to hate them and, in fact, love them. Listen, if you, aren't, if you don't believe in God's goodness, then when somebody wrongs you, you will step outside the will of God to attain justice in your life. And you will become consumed with making sure that everybody else gets what's coming to them. And you'll become consumed and bitter and angry and the work will never end. There's always somebody to fight. And God ultimately promises that He will avenge sin. All sin. Every wrong, every injustice, every small and large sin that has been committed on this earth, God will avenge. But He does it in an unexpected way. We love to talk about a passage like this where David's the hero. Look at how David forgives. He's a man of integrity. We should be like David, we say. But we've been talking about this. There's a main plot and there's a subplot. And the main plot is that Jesus is the hero of every story. Even in the Old Testament, every story points to him. And here, David is a foreshadow of a greater king who would come named Jesus. And David showed honor and grace to Saul who deserved no honor. But Jesus has come into our lives and has shown grace to sinners who do not deserve his forgiveness. He's shown grace to me and you. You're not David in this story. You're Saul. You are the rebel who is unwilling to accept the true king. You're the rebel who is unwilling to accept Jesus as the one who is the rightful heir to the throne. You're the one who's unwilling to submit your life to him. 
See, we look for ways to remove Jesus from the throne in our lives and put ourselves in that place. We remove him from our decisions. We remove him from our lives. We remove him from our future. But Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies of God, people don't like that language, but this is what the Bible says. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled. We were enemies of God, but we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. We were enemies of God, but Jesus, the greater David, spared our lives. And the way he spared his life was by not sparing his own. He bore the wrath of his father so that we wouldn't have to. See, people don't like it when you talk about God being angry at sin. But God is angry at sin. He hates injustice. He's angry at the large systemic injustices in the world and He's angry at the small little sins that no one in the world knows that you commit because He's holy. He's angry at sin. He's angry at your sin. He's angry at my sin. He's angry at sin. And He's angry because it distorts the good creation that He has made. And it distorts the life that He intended for you to live. He wants you to experience a joyful life. And sin is causing you to miss out on that. But God is love also. And the only way to satisfy His own anger and to satisfy His love for us was for Him to pour out His anger onto Himself. He came to earth. He lived a sinless life and died the death that we deserve in our place. See, God is a God of justice. And God is true to His Word. And He will punish sin and evil in this world including the sin and the evil that's in your own heart. Every single sin will be paid for. Listen to me, church. Either on the cross 2,000 years ago or with your life. Eternity separated from God. And for those who will submit themselves to Jesus, your sin is forgiven at the cross. It's paid for. It's not a popular thing to believe in this, but I do believe in hell. I know it's not fashionable these days. But before you get angry with me, I don't believe that heaven is a place for good people and hell is a place for bad people. Hell is a place for those who ultimately refuse to receive God's mercy. And heaven is a place for those who realize that they are messed up and can only be reconciled to God through Jesus on the cross. And so when people say that Christians are arrogant and we're boastful and often we're guilty as charged, but there is no reason for us to be arrogant or boastful because the only reason we have been reconciled to God has nothing to do with anything we did and anything we mustered up, but rather the only reason that we can be reconciled to God is because Jesus came to do it for us. So we should never be angry. We should never be boastful. But rather we should forgive. And when we understand this, that God has offered Himself as the atonement for our sins, that's when we recognize that we've been forgiven, that's when we can truly forgive. Fifteen or so years ago, I remember my mom picking up the telephone and my older sister, who was away at college, was on the other end of the phone and she was sobbing. You could hear it away from the phone. And one of her closest friends in college, who had just left their college Bible study that night, 
on her way home was struck by a drunk driver and was killed at 19 years old. And she was killed by another one of her peers, a 19-year-old student. And she was a really popular girl on campus. She was in a sorority. She was, you know, in Bible studies and everybody knew her. So the story got a lot of coverage. And so it was a pretty big deal down in, on campus. And when her killer, the guy who was drunk with a blood alcohol content of 0.26, when he was up for sentencing, it was Laura Trependall's parents who stood up and chose not to press charges. In fact, they went before a judge and they begged for the minimum sentence. This is what they said to the judge. They said, Your Honor, we appreciate the opportunity to convey our sentiments to you regarding the sentencing. We are Christians. Forgiveness is an integral part of our Christian faith. We have asked Christ and He has has enabled us and strengthened us to fully forgive this young man involved in this tragedy. Therefore, from our own personal perspective, we have no need for, nor will we gain any satisfaction from seeing him further punished. And her parents knew, they said later, they said, we know what it's like to be young and foolish. And they knew that they could put themselves in his shoes, and they knew that 20 years ago, it's very likely they could have done something just as stupid. And so they said, we're no better than him. That could have been us 20 years ago. But they were also Christians, and they had experienced forgiveness. And so the, experience, the forgiveness that they had experienced from Jesus, they extended to her daughter's killer. And not all stories like this end with happy endings, but one of the beautiful things about this story is a, this guy who was being sentenced, a bunch of his fraternity brothers were in the room when the sentencing happened. And several of them came to know Christ in that moment. And Laura's father actually had a chance to go into this man's prison cell. He got the minimum sentence, so he was there for one year, and shared her faith with him, and he became a follower of Jesus. See, when we understand that God has spared us, we then can give our forgiveness to others. See, grace begets grace. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, your theology ought to lead you to trust that God will judge the evils of this world, and so we don't need to take vengeance in our own hands. We can trust in God's sovereignty and we can believe that God will bring justice and restoration. In the final chapter of the Count of Monte Cristo, Dante admits what he failed to see all along. He says, Until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. So when you've been wronged, The gospel gives you the strength to let it go and to wait and hope in the goodness of God for Him to right the wrongs in your life. And I know many of you in this room, I know many of your stories, you've been wronged tremendously through a parent, a friend, a spouse, and you're holding on to it. And you're holding on to that. You're bitter about it. You're angry about it. And you keep holding on to it. You think about it all the time and it eats you up. And you're miserable. So consider the table of communion today a chance for you to let it go. To forgive. See, when you come and you take the bread and the cup, let it remind you that you have done far worse in your rebellion to a holy God than anybody has ever done to you. Your sin placed Jesus on a cross. And if you had been there 2,000 years ago, you would have been singing with the crowds, crucify Him. 
Yet Jesus in his pain, nails on a cross, blood streaming down his body, crown of thorns on his head, looks at you and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So when you take the bread and the cup today, receive that grace today. And allow that grace to seep deep into your soul and into your bones. And allow that grace to extend beyond you so that you can forgive others and in turn set yourself free. I know you've been wronged. But it's killing you letting that eat you up. So take it to Jesus. Cast all your cares upon Him, He says. Lay them at the foot of Jesus. Let Him pick up the injustice in your life and let Him fight for justice so you don't have to worry about it. And you will actually experience freedom by letting His forgiveness wash over you so that you can then show it to others. Let's pray.